Well, this morning we want to begin a new study. You remember last uh, time we finished up our series on deacons, and before that we had finished up the Gospel of Luke. Today we're going to go back to the Old Testament, and we're going to go to the book of Joshua. I want to begin a series or messages, preaching, lessons, whatever you want to call it as far as these things go, on the book of Joshua. And as our habit and striving to have a balance when we preach, what we're trying to do is we grab one from the New Testament and when we finish that up, we try to go back to the Old Testament. And that does give us a little bit of a balance. It also gives us a, a good idea more of what the Old Testament's about. Sometimes that that book is overlooked a lot, especially among Christians today, because, well, we're not under the law of Moses. We don't have anything to do with that sort of thing. Thus, then uh, we just want to stick to the new. There is a danger to that. The apostle himself did not look at the scriptures that way. He saw it all as a whole. And certainly the, art, the law of Moses as a covenant is done away with. But at the same time, though, there is still morality found in the Old Testament. There is still equity found in the law that still applies to the people of God. And we'll see that this evening, in fact, very plainly as we read our particular passage in the book of Leviticus tonight. But in saying all that, I do is just we're trying to create a balance. I don't want to be all just New Testament. I don't want to be all just Old Testament. So I've taken up the habit of just trying to do one and then do the other. And hopefully that will kind of give or at least give me a tendency to be more balanced. If it would have just had my way here, I'd be preaching justification by faith alone 52 weeks out of the year. But, of course, that would not be uh, the right thing to do. It wouldn't be a balanced thing to do. And so we must keep, I trust, to preach the whole counsel of God. Well, as my usual, when we open up a new book, we try to give an introduction, and hopefully this will uh, give us some sort of a way into the book. It will also help us in our understanding. As with each book of the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, there is usually found an overall theme, of course, a lot of sub-themes within it, but nonetheless an overall theme, which if we get a grasp of that, that will certainly give us a help in trying to understand the book that we're looking at in this particular book. There is a theme that certainly runs throughout it. So I want to handle several things this morning as we look to this introduction, and then I'll complete the introduction next Lord's Day morning in dealing more with Joshua himself, uh, something of his early testimony, something of his middle testimony, and then his testimony as we end into this book, go into this book, we'll see something of his life. Well, to begin, we'll begin at the beginning here uh, of our book. You'll notice the title is called The Book of Joshua. And I know some people don't consider these sort of things given by inspiration. That's neither here nor there for me on that. I'm seeing it in my Bible, and thus I'm going to treat it as part of the Scriptures themselves. And you can think what you will about that and about me in regards to that, but I'm just telling you why I'm doing it. I do believe these things are part of Scripture. The title that is given to us in our authorized version is the book of Joshua. And so we see that pretty plainly. Some have concluded that the title here has to do with uh, something of the theme of the book. That is, it's dealing with Joshua himself. It's the book of Joshua, thus explaining something of his life, something of his exploits, something of his leadership. And certainly that is true. And others say, no, it has the title, the book of Joshua, because he is the author of this book. And some even conclude, well, it's a little bit of both. And that's why we have the title, The Book of Joshua. 
Well, who is the author of this book? Well, actually, there's been several names given uh, throughout time in regards to who is the actual author of this book. Joshua certainly heads the list as for the main book of the book. There would be some parts they would say, well, Joshua couldn't have written this because it's maybe taking place after his death. Just like in some of the aspects of uh, the law of Moses, there are things that some conclude just couldn't be Moses writing unless God gave him a, a prophecy of it and he pinned it down. Anyway, I don't have a problem with that view or the other view that someone else did write as well in that. Either way, it's still scripture and that's the most important thing. But as I said, Joshua, though, seems to be the one who heads the list on who is the author of this book. There have been others suggested, Ezra is one of them. Uh, Isaiah even made the list. Samuel and even Daniel has been suggested as the author of this particular portion of the Word of God. But Joshua, though, is the one that is commonly given as the author, and at least, as I said, for the main bulk of that. And some of the passages that they conclude from that is found in Joshua, for instance, chapter 5 and verse 1. And... uh, Again, whether you agree with it or not, I'm just giving you what they say. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we, notice that, the personal plural pronoun there, weep were passed over, that their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them any more because of the children of Israel. Well, who else would be a part of that we? if it was not Joshua himself. Another one is Joshua 24. And actually, this is more so in a particular speech he is given. So whether you could take that as the whole of the book is questionable. But again, I'm not giving these because that's what I think. I'm just telling you what some of the commentators say. Chapter 24, verse 26. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. And took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And the conclusion of that is, yes, obviously it's talking about the immediate context of what was written. But they say it sounds a whole lot like the rest of the book. So, again, the possibility there that Joshua is writing not only this portion of Scripture, but the remainder of the book as well. And then one more, Joshua 6 and verse 25. And uh, and Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive in her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelled in Israel even unto this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. You say, well, how did that fit in as a proof that it might have been Joshua who wrote that? Well, whoever was the author of the book was writing it in such a time and time frame that Rahab was still alive. Remember, it says here, that she was in Israel even unto this day. And they say, well, who uh, would be more likely to still be living at that time but the one whom the book is actually uh, entitled afterwards? Well, that's some of the reasons as to why they think, John, you say, well, big deal, and you're absolutely right, big deal. But again, this is just simply an introduction, and you may be wondering, well, who wrote this portion of Scripture? Well, there's your ideas there. Now, the point of that is we may not know who is the actual author of this book, uh, as the case may be. But that itself, in and of itself, does not take away from the divine hand that is behind the book. And that's the most important thing. 
whether we can discern who is really the author of the, uh, the book of Joshua doesn't really matter. The most important thing is, is that it, behind whoever the human author is, is the divine hand, so to speak, that wrote this book to begin with. This book is given by inspiration just as much as the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke or the book of Romans. It's part of our Bible. And the fact that it is given by inspiration does not rest on the fact that we know who the author is. That has nothing to do with whether the book is divine or not. It's well enough that the, bi- the book, particular book is found in our Bibles and thus it is scripture, and thus it is of divine composition, and it is authoritative. So if we just can't figure out certain things about a particular book, maybe even some of the interpretations about a particular book, does not do away with the inspiration of the book or the authority of the book. Who could not go, or who would go to the book of Revelation and raise their hand and say, yeah, I've got it all figured out. I know every jot and tittle of that book. Well, of course, nobody could and nobody can understand all of it, at least I don't think. And thus, does that depend then, is it dependent on whether someone knows it, whether it's inspired or not? Of course not. Well, the same thing when it comes to these historical books that we find in the Word of God. There are just some things we cannot understand in regards to the Scripture. And there are some things that we are not privy to when it comes to Scripture themselves, such as perhaps here, who is the author of the book. If you want to believe it's Joshua, I would probably be in agreement with you, and thus we'd have no problem with that. Now, the third thing is the date. I don't know the exact date of the book, composition of the book. The reason why? Because it's not given. We do know at the time that it was written according to that passage we're dealing with Rahab, that it was being, had been written up to the time of which Rahab was still alive. So it gives us a rough estimate then, at least in biblical times, as to when this took place, or the writing of it. But it's the events that's most important here. That is, from the time of Joshua to the end of the book of Joshua, what is the date? Well, Usher gives it around 1450 or 1451 B.C., So we're looking at a book that's over 3,400 years old. Amazing, isn't it? That we still have a book around that's been written, uh, that's been, uh, that's that's 3,400 years. I got my math right on that. 3,400 years old. Now, the length from the beginning of Joshua till we get to the end of it is about 17 years or anywhere from 27 to 30 years. In other words, time you opened up the book to Joshua chapter 1 and then you ended, I believe, in Joshua 24, there is about a time span between 17 years and 30 years. That, of course, is debated. And thus, the point of that is you can see how fast that the people of Israel went in and conquered the land that God had told them to go in and to conquer. So they did it in a pretty quick fashion. And the promise is being fulfilled that fast unto the nation of Israel. And then now I want us to look at the contents. If you're taking notes, this is number four. The contents of the book. Well, first of all, this is an historical narrative. You cannot read the book of Joshua and not see that. It's not like the book of Romans. It's not like the book of Galatians. It's not like Timothy or some of the New Testament passages. It is a book that deals with a historical record of what took place in the early days of Israel. So it will be looked at then a little bit differently. 
historical narrative, as a, preaching through it is a lot different than preaching through the book of Romans where it's more doctrinal. Here it is more of a historical narrative of the history of Israel as they prepared and as they do enter into the land of Canaan, that is the promised land, and the events that follow as they begin to conquer the land uh, of Canaan, that is the nations who were there. In all of this, though, we in this history, we do see some subjects as some individuals. For instance, Joshua shows up amazingly. We see Rahab. We see uh, other men and women showing up in the book of Joshua. So it's a historical, not only of events that take place, uh, but also of individuals. Something of a, perhaps of an, a narrative in that case, a biography, a mini, mini, mini biography. Uh, another one, of course, Israel as a nation, as the Old Testament church. They're certainly portrayed here. We see other nations as well. They're going to go into land of Canaan. There are some Canaanites who were dwelling there, uh, made up of different nations, and they too are spoken of. Different cities are spoken of. We will see the conquests of Israel as they go in, and they are told, you remember, to go in and wipe out these nations and take possession of the land. We see some of the conquests, the victories that take place. Also, we see some of the failures of Israel and some of the things that they do. We see speeches given in this book. We see discourses given in this book. We see exhortations that are given in this book, as well as some warnings, just out and out warnings given in this book. We also see the division of the land unto the, uh, I think about really, you think technically nine and a half tribes of Israel, which was a fulfillment of the promises of God. So that's one of the major things that the writer of this book is going to show us, is that God is true to his word. He had promised in the law of Moses, in the book of Moses, that the land, the land, of, Israel, the land of Canaan belonged to the nation of Israel. And they were going to go in and they were going to possess it especially the second generation that came out of Egypt. And so this is the fulfillment of that promise. So it's a book then that encourages the people of God that God is true to his word, that he will fulfill the promises that he's given. And brethren, that's true in any age. We can take that as a fact even today, that his word is true, his promises are true, as well as his threatenings, they too are true. So it's a book that shows us the the fulfillment of the promises of God towards his people. Now, in this idea of what's in the book here, again, if you're taking notes, there are four main parts to the book. At least I consider four main parts. Someone may find more. This is, again, interpretation here. From chapters 1 through 5, we see the entrance of the Israelites into the land of Canaan. The preparation, and then the actual moving over the river Jordan, and then going into the land and begin actually to conquer there in a few first few chapters. And then verses, or chapters, excuse me, 6 through 12, we see the victories for, of Israel under Joshua over the Canaanite nations. There are nations that must be conquered before they can take full possession of the land. And uh, we see these victories given. Chapters 13 through 21, we see the division of the, uh, the land to the different tribes. God, when they're all said and done, God does actually lot it out to the individual tribes of Israel. 
You remember the tribes consisted of the twelve sons of Israel. Some do not possess land. For instance, the Levites, that was a tribe that does not get any land in the sense of owning a possession like that. But the others do. For uh, chapters 22 through 24, we see the final exhortation of Joshua to the people and then his death. So those will be the main heads as we go through the gospel. Uh, I want to say gospel. I'm saying the gospel of Luke so long. Uh, actually going through the book of Joshua. I actually have a book on my shelf. It's called The Gospel of Joshua. And he tries to show there that all the figures and types certainly point to Jesus and the gospel and those things, which we will deal with in just a few moments about types and figures. Now, what is all of this for us? This will be the fifth heading for us. That's how I titled that one. Well, while this is history... We need to also recognize it is history that is, first of all, accurately recorded as it is God's Word. In other words, when we go through the book of Joshua, and you may read the commentaries, you may read secular history, and you say, well, this disagrees with the Word of God. This disagrees with what Joshua says in the book of Joshua. Well, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It got, the, the Bible has priority over men's thinking. And that's just the way it's going to be when it comes to our exposition of God's Word from this pulpit. The Bible has priority over what I think, what you think, or any noted commentator or noted historian, or any reprobate for that matter, may think about the God's Word, and in particular the book of Joshua. It's true, whether we like it or not. It's true, and it is accurate. Our problem is figuring out what it says and then applying it to our lives. So it is a history. As we began this morning, we said this is a historical narrative. Now, the difference between this and perhaps something you may read in another history book is that this is sacred history. And I mean that in two ways. One, that it is true. And secondly, that it is truth regarding the people of God. So we're not talking about the sacred history of America and thinking of it in that light, which whether you even want to believe that sort of thing, but we're talking about a people who were designated to be the elect of God of the Old Testament. This is God's covenant people that we're dealing with, and this is historical narrative dealing with them. And thus then, in saying all that, it has profit for the people of God today. In fact, the people of God in any and every age since this book was, has been penned. And so that's how we're going to look at it. It is a book that is filled with historical narrative that is sacred, script, sacred narrative dealing with the covenant people of God. And as such, then, it is profitable for us. In fact, you remember the Apostle Paul when he speaks about the, the idea of Scripture and how that it is given by inspiration. He tells us that those Old Testament books, and that was the context of that passage in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, he tells us there that it's profitable. Well, what's it profitable for, Paul? Well, he tells us, he says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, or for, excuse me, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that's how we're going to deal then with this book. We're going to see that Paul is true to his word. That the word of God, all of God's word, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 
And so that will be my purpose, as I hope it has been my purpose in any book that we try to preach through from the Word of God. Now, before I close this out, I want to do one more thing. And I want, and before I get to the application in a way, I want to look, say something about the issues of types and figures that we do see in the Bible. Types and figures or shadows. Uh, and this is rather difficult because everybody has their play and thinking about it. But I do realize there are those who do make too much of types and shadows from the Word of God. And then there are those who go to the opposite of stream and find very little in that way of teaching from the Word of God. Now, there are types and there are figures and there are shadows that are found in the Old Testament. Nobody reading their Bibles and believing the Scripture should deny this. The Gospel that the Bible tells us was obviously preached from the, from the very beginning of time, It was preached, as we see, even unto Satan or to Eve there and to Adam in the garden. And it was done, though, not by saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But it was done in shadows and types. Look over in the book of Hebrews. This is where we're going to be looking at now for the remainder of the lesson. I just want to say a few things about this so that either help you in it or to remove some prejudices you may have in regards to types and figures and shadows because I know you can read after a certain author and they see a type in every single syllable of the Word of God and I suppose that's better than not seeing any in the Word of God but I think there is a balance and uh, whether I have the correct balance or not is not for me to say at the moment but uh, we want to be dealing honestly with Scripture. But as I said, we do know the gospel was preached in the Old Testament. Hebrews, for instance, chapter 4 tells us, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. And the them there is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's the context of this chapter, chapter 4. In fact, Joshua, or Jesus, but he means Joshua here in this text, and we'll show that next week. Down in verse 8, and we know then the immediate context is also speaking about the book of Joshua. And there he says that the gospel was preached unto them. Well, how was it preached? Well, again, we could go and look in vain. Do we see any passage that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? We won't see that. We won't see, oh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You won't see a good set formula of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ in one neat verse of, the, of a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. So how was he preached if he was preached? Well, we know he was because the Scripture says so. We know the gospel was set forth to Israel. Well, how was it done? Well, it was done by types and shadows. And types and shadows and figures are these things. They're not they're real things in the Old Testament, but they point to something that was really true in the New Testament. In other words, it's not just a pure spiritualizing, oh, well, uh, the flood never really happened, so it's not a picture or a type of the coming judgment upon the world. Well, yes, it is, as a matter of fact. It really took place. The world was flooded by God there where it rained 40 days and 49. There was a complete destruction over all the earth except for eight persons. And also that it does speak of the coming judgment that God is going to put upon the whole world at the last day. That's a real event, 
but it foretold or pictured or was a type or a figure of something to come. That is what you in the main do have a lot in the Old Testament. Within the law of Moses, for instance, Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews that Moses, for instance, spoke of things which pointed to the true. Look over in the book of, again, in Hebrews, if you're still there. Hebrews 9 and verse 24. For Christ... Now, here he's been speaking of the Levitical priesthood and the tabernacle and those things that were set up under Moses. He says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands. In other words, he didn't go into the tabernacle or the temple actually and literally do these things, he says. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. In other words, the, the Old Testament tabernacle or the temple... Uh, as the case may be, were just figures or types of that which was the true, which was, he says here, heaven itself. So when you look back over the Old Testament and you see Moses writing about the tabernacle, yes, there was a real, honest tabernacle within. There was the veil, there was the ark and all those things. But it pictured something in the future. And he says here is the application or the interpretation of it but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, the Old Testament tabernacle was a picture or a type of heaven. John, for instance, records that Jesus said, Search the Scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So, there were things written in the Law of Moses, written in the, uh, the Prophets and in the Psalms, that in some way, some manner, spoke in type or figure or even reality of the Lord Jesus. You remember on the road to Emmaus, as we saw in the last chapter of the book of Luke here recently, how that Jesus is walking along with those brethren and he says there that he opens up the Old Testament. He opens up the prophets, and, uh, the law, the prophets and the Psalms, and he speaks of himself. Well, he had to be dealing in some way, in some shape there, with types and figures of the true, as we see in Hebrews. For instance, Adam was a type of Christ. Go over the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure, and the Greek word there is uh, tapos, which means, tupos, excuse me, which means figure or type. And so he is a type or a figure of him that was to come. So that's a legitimate type. Adam is a legitimate type or a figure or shadow of Christ. If we don't believe that, then you might want to question whether you understand the fifth chapter of the book of Romans or not. And then you might want to question whether you're even converted, because this is dealing with salvational issues here in this chapter. Uh, another passage, look over in 1 Corinthians 10. Very familiar verse. And the same word, uh, tupos, is used again in this verse. Chapter 10 and verse 11. Now, all these things happen unto them for examples. You might say examples. The authorized version says examples, but it means a type or figure. 
They were figures for us. That is, the children of Israel, as they went into idolatry, as they committed fornication, as they tempted Christ, as they lusted in verse 6, he says these things were a type or an example for us. And they are written for our admonition upon the home the ends of the world are come. So notice that. The Old Testament then was written, yes, as historical narrative of what took place at that time for the people of Israel, even for that day. But for us, what do they become? They become examples for us. They are our admonition. And they're done in types and figures as one way of doing that. 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, excuse me. Romans 15. We'll get out of 1 Corinthians. Romans 15, another passage dealing with that. Uh, Paul here is quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9 and verse 3. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. If you read Psalm 69, you would think that's David. Well, it was David uh, and as far as the immediate context was concerned. But Paul applies that to whom? Christ. So David then is a type or a figure of Christ as well. And then he goes, says in verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were what? Were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So the Old Testament is not just a dead book, a dead letter that was suddenly done away with. When Christ died, as we are now in the glorious new covenant, which we would agree with, but we still see, though, there are valuable lessons that are to be learned for us. These things were written for our learning. And as Paul says, they were written for the end of the world. That is for us. God recorded what he did from Genesis to Malachi, not just for Israel's sake, but he did it for us here this morning. This was preserved, or written, preserved, and handed down particularly for us. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. So that's amazing, isn't it? It makes you look at the Old Testament, I think, in a whole different light. Rather than the way it's been bounced around in our day and time by certain individuals. So there is well then something for us in this. Now, because there are... Out of time. I was going to give you several types that are you. I give you. I'm going to give you five, and I'll do that next week. Just kind of keep your uh, keep your going there. The five types will be Joshua, the people of Israel, the nations, and Canaan. The battles they face. Canaan itself. What do they picture, or what is the figure that they point to? I'll save that for next time.